My name is uh, Adam King, and I am the director of Family Ministries here at Northwest, and I have the privilege of being here in front of you today just to kind of share a little bit of um, what's going on in my heart and uh, some things that I've been challenged by. Brian is, uh, Pastor Brian's in Kenya right now with a team of guys doing some ministry there with our pastors that we support. So I have the privilege of standing before you and opening God's Word. So I'm excited, and I hope that you guys are excited to open His Word this morning as well. The thing that I've been challenged with lately, and this is going to sound like really harsh up front, but when I look at, at people that I know and when I, when I see things going on in the social networking world and things that people say, and when I know that these people claim to be Christians and then I see how they live their lives, you know, it, it kind of frustrates me. And, you know, we use the word hypocrite and I don't want to, you know, do a message on people being hypocrites and everything. But what I want to do is just kind of talk about, right, we're, we're called to be Christians in a world that's very, very dark. And so this morning, I'd like to just kind of have a, kind of like a spiritual gut check, if you will. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about are going to seem maybe very elementary and very basic, but these characteristics that we're going to talk about of a, of a believer are things that we learn about as kids, but as we grow older, we kind of push them to the wayside and we say, okay, we got those ones figured out. Let's move on to the hard things, right? Let's figure out, you know, we had a great month this last, last month. Let's work on, okay, when, when God seems like he's not even there and, and we're doubting that God exists and we're going through times where, where we really, really need God to show himself. Those are the kind of things, you know, as, as we get older that we really start dealing with. And we forget some of the basic things of, of being a Christian. And so I don't know if, uh, if any of you guys watched Lost when it was on TV, but this is going to kind of be like a realignment of the island, okay? We're going to kind of just do a little gut check this morning. So when I was a teenager, I heard one, one saying, I think, more than anything in my life from people, and that was, Adam, grow up, okay? <laughs> Another way of putting that would be, you know, and this is like for the sarcastic people out there, like, Adam, Act your age, not your shoe size, right? Like people try to get all clever with it. But bottom line is, you know, Adam, grow up, act your age. And, uh, you know, that's like, that like hurts when someone says that to you. When we get to certain points in our life, we are expected to, to act a certain way. It's not just our age that sets expectations, however. It's who you are that determines how you should live your life, how you should act. To explain that and illustrate that a little bit better, I have a couple scenarios that I'm going to read to you just to kind of to help us wrap our minds around that. So firstly, Princess Margaret, as a young girl, sits beside her mother, Queen Elizabeth, at the princess's first presentation to the British public. She is called upon to walk to the microphone and say a few words to the gathered dignitaries, and as she prepares to stand, her mother leans over to her and says, you are a princess, walk like one, Right? So who she is, she's a princess, that is uh, affecting how she walks, and that's with, with dignity. Second scenario, 18-year-old Chuck has gone through 12 of the toughest weeks of anyone's life in Marine boot camp in coastal South Carolina. During the last week, they are forced to crawl under rolls of barbed wire with live machine gun ammunition blazing just inches over their head. Like that right there in itself just terrifies me. Um, so Chuck, he's been through training and he freezes, right? He begins to sweat. He digs his hands into the, the red clay beneath him. And as, as panic kind of sweeps over his soul, a friend of his comes up next to him and he says, he says, Chuck, get a hold of yourself. You're a Marine. Act like one, right? So, so who he is, a Marine, should affect how he acts under pressure. And that's with courage. If you guys have your Bibles this morning, let's, let's open to Ephesians 4. 
verse 1. And in a few short verses, what Paul is going to say to us is, listen, you are Christians, so act like it. Okay? You are Christians, so act like it. Now, one thing that, that's really cool as I was doing my studying that's, that Paul does in a lot of his epistles is this. He kind of front loads his books with a lot of doctrine, like a really, really, really rich, deep doctrine about what God's given us and who God is. And then usually at the end of his letters, he'll, he'll have some sort of practical application, right? So because, uh, because of these things, here's how you should, should live your life. And so that's what we're going to find here in Ephesians chapter 4. So, so verse 1, here's how Paul starts. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he begins with, uh, with a therefore. And so what, become, uh, what comes before this verse is what merits the use of a therefore. So in the first three chapters, like I already said, he, he, he kind of front loads with doctrine. Here's a few of the things that, that Paul tells us in, those, in the first little bit. He says, tells us about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He tells us about election and predestination about how we're adopted as sons and daughters into God's family and how we're redeemed through the blood of Jesus and we're forgiven from our sins. We, we are shown grace. We have wisdom. There's unity in the body. There's salvation through Christ and there's sealing by the Holy Spirit. So many rich pieces of doctrine and those right there, by the way, that's just like the first 13 chapters or first 13 verses of chapter one. That's like the first little chunk right there has all that theology and all that doctrine. And so, what, what Paul says is, therefore, because of, because of all these things that God has given to you, because of, because of all the things that, that God has done for you, because of these things, walk in a manner that's worthy of, of the calling. Walk worthy of your calling. Now, in order for us to understand what it looks like to live in a worthy manner, we have to first understand what our calling is. To be called implies that we've been, been chosen, Right? The, the church, ecclesia, that literally means the called out ones. So we as a body of believers are called out, right? We're called out. That's the church. In order to be called out, we have to be called out of something and into something else. So a couple verses that tell us what we're called out of. Here's First Peter 2 verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So right there we see the picture of being called out of, of darkness and into, into light. And then in uh, Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 5, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so right there we see that we're called out of death and into life. I like how James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary, here's how he says it. He says, because God has set his hand upon us and called us, changing us from what we were into what we have now become, we are to live as Christians in this world. So because of where he brought us out of the darkness, the death, and what he brought us into the life because of that, we are to live as Christians in this world. And so our calling then is very, very simple, and it's this. We are called to be Christians. And that word Christian, what that means is little Christs, right? So we're called to live a life that models the life that Jesus lived while he was on this earth. And so we're called, we're called to live that way. 
in order to be counted worthy of that name, worthy of the name Christian, we have to live a certain way. And so the next few verses, Paul is going to talk about some of the things in our life that should be evident if we're living life in a worthy, in a worthy manner. So in essence, again, Paul is saying you're a Christian, so, so act like it. So verse 2 in Ephesians 4, we're going to read the next couple of verses and talk about them. Here's what he says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right, so here we go. Kids ministry, okay, growing up, be humble, right? Be patient, be gentle with one another, love one another, right? Those are, those are things that we, we learn in our lives, but we so often overlook. We feel like we get comfortable and we're like, okay, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm living this good life. So let's worry about like, you know, the deep things. Let's worry about the deep spiritual issues and uh, humility, patience. You know, I might mess up, but that'll, you know, that'll come. You know, I'll, I'll kind of be reminded of that once in a while. Okay, so here's your reminder. We are to live a life of patience, humility, gentleness, and, and loving one another. So humility, let's start there. In his commentary on Ephesians, Watchman Nee, who is a Chinese theologian. He tells a story of a, of a Christian in South China who had his rice field on, on the side of a hill. And during the growing season, he used a hand-worked water wheel to lift the water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill to his fields. And so he would actually have to physically pump the water to get it up into his fields, you know, for his crops to grow. His neighbor had two fields below his so you got the Chinese brother on the hill and you have two fields below. And um, what the, uh, the neighbor did is he came out one night and he, he started poking holes in the, in the wall and drained all the water out of the Christian's field down into his own fields. So he stole the man's water. And, and this happened three or four times. And finally, the Christian asked his brothers, he said, he said what, am I, you know, what am I supposed to do? I've tried to be patient. I've tried to not retaliate, but isn't it right for me as a Christian to confront him? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I confront him? So the Christians all prayed together and then one of them replied, we have to do something, we have to do something more than what is right. More than what is right as Christians. If we only try to do the right thing, then surely we are very, very poor Christians. And um, so we have to do something more. The Christian farmer was impressed with this advice. So the next day he went out and first pumped water for the two fields below his. So he pumps water for his neighbor's fields. And then he pumps water into his own field. So he worked twice as long, filled his neighbor's fields with water. And from that day on, the water stayed in his field. The neighbor didn't mess with it anymore. And, and in time, the neighbor, after asking a lot of questions about why he would do that, why would you help me in that way? Um, after those conversations and questions, his neighbor became a Christian through that, through that interaction. And that right there is the perfect illustration of humility, because humility is refusing to insist on our own rights, on what we want, and it's putting our neighbor's interests before our own. And that's exactly what this man did. But this is the opposite of what the world tells us to do, right? It's all about you, right? You should pursue the things that you want to do, and you should live for yourself. You know, the saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? So get out there and, and make a name for yourself. It's going to be tough, but you have to do it for you. Or as some rappers like to say, okay, I just got to get mines, right? I just got to get mines. Okay. It's all about you. It's all about doing for yourself. And it's all about getting what you want, all right? Pursuing what you want, selfishly what you want. That's not humility, but that's what the world throws at you. And that cannot be our attitude. And here's why as Christians, we're not really allowed to have that attitude. And here's why. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you guys have probably heard this. By grace, you have been saved through faith, right? Not your own doing, 
but it's the gift of God and it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So it's nothing that we've done. Jesus came and he died for us so that we could have a relationship with him. It's nothing that we can do. And so how can, then, how can we be proud, right? We have nothing to be proud about, proud about because we haven't done anything. And Christ did all of that for us. And so living a life of pride is completely against what Christ did and how he called us to live. If we're to exemplify Christ, if we're to live lives as, as little Christs, then we're going to look at ways that Jesus modeled this for us. So in John chapter 13, we find the disciples sitting around the table at what we call the Last Supper. And uh, in the middle of dinner, Jesus gets up and he starts washing the feet of, of the disciples. Now, something that we need to understand before we really talk about this is that feet, feet are nasty, right? Feet are incredibly, incredibly dirty. Back then, it was even worse because it was, you know, all dirt roads. You can imagine the animals that walked on these roads and just kind of did their business whenever they felt like it. You know, mud and dirt and, I mean, it's just nasty. And on top of that, they wore sandals, right? So there's no telling what is, what's on their feet, what's like between their toes, right? Like what's underneath their toenails. So back then, feet were, were, were even nastier than they are today. I mean, it was, it was like gross. And so Jesus gets up and he starts washing their feet. And, and to the disciples, this is like, I mean, this is unbelievable to them. They are, they are completely shocked that Jesus would do this. Paul uh, already tells us in Philippians that Jesus lowered himself to become a human. So he's already humbled himself coming out of heaven, coming down to earth and becoming a man, right? And we know how disgusting humans are. And so he already lowers himself there. But not only that, then he takes on the form as the lowest servant on the food chain, right? On the servant food chain. So first he lowers himself to humanity. And then he says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove even more what humility is. And I'm going to lower myself to the, to the lowest servant of all. And I'm going to get down on my knees right, on the ground and start washing their feet. That is humility. That is giving up your rights. That's giving up who you are for the sake of of your neighbors. And Jesus models that perfectly there, lowering himself below others and serving their needs. So reality check, gut check here for you. What about you? Do you find yourself living life for yourself? Do you have your best interest in mind? Or are you serving others? Not only serving others, but are you seeking the needs of others, trying to find out what the needs are, and then trying to serve those needs? Not just waiting to hear about them, but actually seeking people that you love and saying, what can I do to help you? What are, what are some needs in your life right now? Let me serve you in that way. Is that what your attitude is? So in other words, are you acting like a Christian and modeling humility, right? Basic humility. But we struggle with that so much because the world we live in says, no, it's not about humility. It's about yourself. Number two, Paul says to live a life uh, with gentleness. Now, other translations will use the word meekness, right? So we're going to kind of juggle those two around. They're synonymous with each other. So we'll talk about meekness. We'll talk about gentleness. But don't get confused when we kind of go back and forth a little bit, right? Meekness, when we hear that word, maybe, sometimes you might think of, of someone as being weak, right? Meekness. Like someone's kind of like, like over in the corner and they're kind of like, you know, they don't want to deal with anything. And they're like, you know, they don't want, they don't like conflict and they just, you know, to themselves and kind of weak, right? We kind of think of that when we think of, of meekness, which is not the case. Here's, here's kind of a, um, not the Webster's definition, but a definition of meekness. Here's what Max Anderson, he says, he says it's a uh, power under control, okay? Power under control. 
I like that. That sounds pretty cool. And if you think about the two men in the Bible that modeled meekness, the greatest for us, it was Moses and it was Jesus. Okay, Moses and Jesus. (laughs) Moses and Jesus were not weak men. And you can look at their lives and say, okay, meekness definitely does not equal weakness, right? Power under control. Think about Moses for a second. Moses, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, uh, here's what he says to God. He says, Lord, I've never been eloquent, right? Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So, so Moses has a speech impediment, right? And God, God wants Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and convince him to let Israel go free. And Moses says, time out. Okay, I can't even talk when I'm just talking, having a conversation. You want me to go to the most powerful man and convince him to free my people? Yeah, right. So Moses in and of himself, okay, here's the point. Moses in and of himself is inadequate. He is completely inadequate and he is, uh, he is completely weak and he cannot fulfill the task that God has set before him. However, right, through the power of God, then we have this, we have you know, power that we can't even understand because God's so powerful. So a weak man, a man that can't do in and of himself then has the power of God come into his life and that's power under control, right? Meekness, God uses men that are, that are unable and weak and they become powerful. We see that in Moses' life. God uses Moses to deliver the, the plagues over Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh, who's oh so powerful, is broken down to his knees and he is just completely distraught. And he says, okay, take them and, and, and leave, right? Take them and leave and, and you, know, you can have your freedom. And eventually, obviously, Pharaoh then chases again because his heart is hardened. But through Moses, the people are free and they go and, and Israel then goes in, into freedom for a short time. And so Moses then is a, is a very, very powerful man because of that. Meekness then is, is not weakness. And look at the synonym gentleness, right? Gentleness. Think about Jesus now for a second. So Moses, meek, right? Moses, in fact, is called the most meek man on the planet, right? So he is not only meek, but he is the most meek, and he is also very powerful. So meekness, okay, not weakness. Here we go. Jesus, we see him physically exert power in the temple, right? We see him go in there, and uh, people are selling all their things, and and he's like, all right, uh, enough of this, starts flipping tables, right, and just completely, like, clears house. We don't see many times beside that that Jesus actually shows physical strength like that, where he exerts that physical strength, Story after story after story, we see Jesus being gentle. We see him being gentle and kind and loving. A couple examples of that. Matthew 19, 13 through 15, here's what, here's what that says. It says, Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, and went away. So imagine Jesus now, God in flesh. Again, more power than we could ever comprehend. And here he is, and and he gets down on his hands and knees, right? And he's he's just kind of, he's kind of sitting down like this, and the kids are coming to him, right? Children. And he's ministering to these kids, and he's he's placing his hands on them, and he's praying for them, and he's loving them, and he's hugging them. I mean, that is gentleness, right? When you think about how someone deals with a child, the disciples are like, no, take the kids away, right? We don't want them around here. And Jesus says, no, I want them around me. 
these children are a perfect example, right? This, this young, vibrant, the, these, these kids, right? They're, they're the example of, of who's going to be in heaven, right? He, he, says, he says, let them come to me, and he, he prays for them, and he deals with them very, very, very gently. And so that's one example. Also, in John 8, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is teaching in the temple courtyard, and right in the middle of his teaching, the Pharisees come in with this woman who, who they have caught in the middle of adultery. And without getting too much into the story, she is shamed. She, she is embarrassed. And they bring her in, they throw her down at Jesus' feet, and Jesus doesn't yell at them. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, put them in their place by, by screaming and shouting and using that power. What he does is very simply, he just, he just says, you know, whoever, whoever is perfect and hasn't sinned, you guys can throw the first stone at her, Right? Very, very gently. And then they're like, oh man, and they, t- you know, they turn, they leave, they kind of disperse. And there's Jesus and the woman. And Jesus comes up to her and you, know, you can imagine him helping her up and saying, you know, where are they? Where are all these people that wanted to kill you? <laughs> they're not here. And uh, he says, well, if they're not going to do anything, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So very, very gently in this situation that you can just imagine is so chaotic, he handles it with gentleness and he handles it very, very soft-spoken, and so Jesus models that for us. So again, now think about, think about your own lives. Are you gentle with people? When you deal with, with people, when you are disciplining people, when, when people make you angry, when they wrong you, when they sin against you, how do you respond to that? Do you respond out of, out of anger, and do you respond because you have a short temper, or are you gentle? Do you deal with them gently? In other words, do you act like a Christian and model gentleness? Okay, gentleness. So we have humility and we have gentleness. The third thing he talks about is, is patience, all right? In fact, we could probably just skip this one, right? Because you guys, no one struggles with patience in here, right? Okay. In the world we live in, and as time goes on, we lose the true meaning of what patience actually is, right? We live in a world where, unbelievable, we can, we can get on an airplane, right, and be literally on the opposite, opposite end of the globe in like under 24 hours, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big earth and we can be there in less than 24 hours. I can get on, on my phone and I can download stuff in like seconds off the internet. McDonald's got a hold of this idea of speed, right? And the one up here next to the church office, if you go there during the lunch hour, maybe other ones do this, they'll actually hand you a timer when you pay. And if the timer runs out, like 30 seconds, if it runs out before you get your food, then it's free, right? Because it's all about speed. It's all about how fast can we make things happen? We're going, we're going, we're going. And so we live in a world that is all about speed. It's all about fast. It's all about getting stuff done quick and living lives that are just so crazy and busy. Now, contrast that with the Old Testament, right? Think about these guys for a second. Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham to make him the father of, of many nations, right? God told him that 25 years passed before he actually did that for him. Okay, 25 years. It's a long time for God to make a promise and then for that promise to be fulfilled. Moses waited 40 years when he went to free, free the Israelites from Egypt. When God told him he was going to make that happen to the time that it actually happened, it was 40 years. Okay, that's a, that's a long time to wait for a promise to come to fruition. And Noah, all right, God says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. I want you to build this ark, by the way, which was nowhere near a big body of water. Okay, so he's building this thing. There's no like massive lakes or oceans around. So you can imagine the ridicule he faced. And it was like close to 100 years that he worked on this ark. Okay, close to 100 years, right? Most of us are not going to live to be 100 years old. Noah worked on a boat for 100 years. 
And then finally, from, from when the point of when God said, uh, I'm going to do this, there's going to be a flood, it's going to rain, I'm going to wipe out humanity, and then we're going to start over. A hundred years later, the flood actually came. I mean, you can imagine the patience that these men had to have in a, in a time when God would make a promise and then so much time would pass. But that's not how it is for us. We want, we want things quickly and we want things done very, very fast. Anyone ever been behind, driving behind someone that's like, probably shouldn't be driving? <laughs> and you're like, and you're sitting there and you're like, just like, seriously? And really, if you think about it, going around them is gonna save you like two seconds to your destination. But still, I mean, that's like, for me, that really tests my patience. And Jade can attest to that. So patience, right? We live in a world that's, that's speed, that's speed. I like this definition of patience. Believing that, that God's timetable is good, no matter what it is, right? Believing that God's timetable is good. So we believe that God's gonna accomplish things in our life when he's, when he's good and ready to do that. And we have, to, we have to wait on God. Sometimes we have things in our life that we want answers to, right? We go through difficult times and we're like, God, just, just tell me why this is happening, right? I need your help. But God says, just wait, just wait. And in my time, I'll let you know why I'm doing this in your life. Webster defines it. I don't even know if that's Web. Is, is that like the guy's name, Webster? It's Webster's Dictionary, but anyways, okay. Patience is defined as bearing of provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain without complaint, loss of temper, irritation, or the like. That sounds a little bit like endurance when you think about that. So take all those definitions, okay, God's timing, endurance, and, and think about Jesus, okay? Jesus, of course, we know is God, and Jesus has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But when Jesus is arrested, he's spit on, he's beaten, he's scourged. They put these, these, these you know, crown of thorns on his head. I mean, he is, he is beaten and, and bloody and, and completely knocked down. I mean, they're, they're you know, slapping him in the face, punching him, all this stuff, right? They're doing all these things, physical harm. And Jesus, who has, has the power to snap and make them fall over dead, right? What does he do? He patiently and quietly endures that. Patiently. In, in fact, in Isaiah, the prophet, here's what he says. He says that he's, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus is the perfect picture of what patience is. It's silently enduring. Okay? The word patience in its original language actually means long-suffering. So to suffer long, that's, that's literally what patience means, to suffer long. In order for us to truly understand and learn what patience is, we have to endure something. We might have to suffer through something. And then, as a result, we learn what patience actually looks like. Romans 5.3 says that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the sufferings produce endurance, produces patience. So let me ask you, have you endured any kind of suffering lately? And if you have, did you allow that suffering to teach you something, to teach you patience? Is your life so crazy and so busy that, you know, when you're stuck behind that driver, your face is like bright red because you're just like getting so irritated and angry? And if that's the case, then you need to slow down. <laughs> but patience, all right, it's, it's kind of a lost art in our world. And it's found, though, as a trait in the lives of Christians all throughout God's word. And so we need to look at that and we need to say, am I, am I a patient person? In fact, it's one of the fruits of the spirit, right? Fruits of the, of the spirit that we gain through the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's something that should just kind of naturally, now that we have him, should be a trait that we just live. Patience, right? Because we're sinners, we're not perfect in that way, but we have the spirit to help us through that. He's our power. Patience, right? Again, 
elementary school, patience, you know, the big word on the wall, but we, we kind of forget that and we kind of start looking past that. So patience, are you modeling a Christian life and, and living patiently? The fourth characteristic is this. He says to bear with one another in love. All right, so everyone kind of just think to yourselves for a second about that one person that just gets on your last nerve, okay? Probably in that moment, you guys just thought of somebody. You know, it's like kind of like you hear their voice coming up behind you. It's like nails on a chalkboard and you're like, oh, you know, they just, they irritate you and that's terrible. But I guarantee that just, uh, just about everyone here can, can think of someone. And what Paul is saying is that don't just bear with them and love them. What he's saying is when, when they show their weakness, when they, when they irritate, when they, when they show their, their failures and when they fall, come alongside them and bear with them in love. Walk alongside of them in love, okay, in love. Another way of putting it would be to say that, that we hold out, okay, we hold back in spite of persecution, threats, injury, indifference, complaints, and to not retaliate. And then in doing this, we show a lifestyle that's consistent with our calling, consistent to being a Christian. And the only way that that's possible for us to do is if we understand God's love. If we understand it, not if we hear about it and it's in our mind, but if we, if we truly understand God's love. How many times do you think God looks at us and he just kind of goes, really? Like, really? You would do that. Okay, not that he's surprised by that, right? He knows what we're going to do, but he, he probably looks at us and he's like shaking his head, like, come on, you know, get a grip, right? He puts up with so many of our, not so many, all of our weaknesses and all of our failures over and over and over. And how does he do it? He does it through love. He does it through, through love. And so if we look at that and we understand the example that he sets, how then can we not live that in our lives, right? We're not better than God, not even close. So we have no right to look at people and say, yeah, God may act this way. I'm not going to act that way, right? We need to look at God and say, here's what he modeled. And so I'm going to try to live my life that way as well. And by the way, we're not going to be perfect at these things, these characteristics, but these are things we need to strive for, things we need to try to really work on in our lives. Let me give you some examples of how you can, how you can bear with, with other people in love. Maybe, maybe you know someone who's really, really struggling with sin in their life really struggling with sin in their life. And every time they fall, man, it's like you, you look at them and you're like, you know, you just want to, you want to grab and kind of shake them and just say, come on, you know, come on. And it's not that easy to overcome sin. We know that. Sometimes you get stuck so deep in a rut and it, it seems impossible to get out. It's only through the power of, of God that we get out of those things. But as fellow believers, we're called to come alongside and bear with those people with an attitude of love right? Romans 15.1 says this, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Those that are strong need to bear with the failings of, of the weak. And maybe there's, there's been a time when there's like a failed expectation in your life or something. Someone has said they'll do something for you or, or they, you know, make, make you think that they're going to act a certain way or to, you know, to help you with, with uh, some area that, that needs work in your life, but, but they fail you. They fail you. And so you become angry and frustrated and kind of spiteful towards that person but we're, we're called to bear with those people in love. Even when they seem to have wronged you, we're to bear with people in love. We're to deal with people in love. So let me ask you, how are you putting up with, with weaknesses and failures of your brothers and sisters in the body? Okay, let's talk about the body. How are you, how are you dealing with people who are at Northwest? Or how are you dealing with, with your spouse, with your children, with friends, with people at your, at your work? 
The way we do it is love. Agape love, by the way, in this passage. Sacrificial love, meaning that we're going to give up and, and look past ourselves and what we feel is, is right and what we feel like needs to happen. And we're going to say, I'm going to bear with this person because they need that. They need love. It's not about how I feel. It's not about how I feel like they may have wronged me. It's about how, uh, what they need and how I'm going to love them. So it's sacrificial kind of love. So are you acting like a Christian and bearing with each other in, in love? Now, Paul goes on to say this in verse 3 about unity. And by the way, unity can be a topic that we can talk about for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, but we're going to kind of brush through it real quick. Here's what he says in verse, in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay? The unity that we have with each other is absolutely impossible to maintain without humility, gentleness, patience, and love. It's impossible because when you start thinking about self, then relationships get disconnected and then unity starts to break. So the unity that he's talking about here in verse three, he's saying, he's saying, here's what the end goal is, okay? You are to live out this way so that you are unified in the body of Christ. But without humility, gentleness, patience, and love, that's not possible. That's impossible. It's a very, very powerful unity, by the way, and it's modeled by the Trinity, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, and by, by God, who are all the same but have separate kind of distinct qualities about themselves, okay? That's another tough thing to wrap your mind around, but they model that for us, right? They are so unified and so, so close together that they are one, and we as the body need to be so unified with each other and look past failures and look past weaknesses and say we are unified under the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's our unity. If we lack humility and place our own desires above everyone else's, if, if we're easily angered instead of being gentle, if we are impatient with, with people instead of enduring with them, if we hold grudges and we seek revenge towards people instead of bearing with them in love, if, if we live this way, that bond of peace it talks about, we can throw peace out the window. Throw peace out the window, you throw unity out the window. And if you throw unity out the window, then we will be ineffective as Christians and as a church body to carry the gospel as we're called to the ends of the earth. So even though these characteristics seem so elementary to us, they are so, so important for us to be able to carry out the gospel, and that's what we're called to do. We have a perfect example of how we can practice this next week. Drew shared a little bit with you this morning, but we're joining, we're joining forces with the creek. I like that how he said that. We're joining forces, right? They're a force of the gospel. We're a force of the gospel. We're joining together to be a bigger force for the gospel. But the only way that will be possible, okay, is if we are unified as a body, right? We look at, at Northwest as a body. We look at the creek as a body. And now we are one body in Christ. And beyond that, we are one body, you know, in, in the whole world under God's kingdom, right? So we are to be unified. And if we aren't humble, if we're not gentle, patient, and loving, when, when they come and join us, then it's not going to be good. Right? There's going to be so many things that we're going to say, well, uh, you know, we did it this way and we did it this way and you know, this way's better and whatever, but we need to be humble, we need to be patient, we need to listen, and we need to love so that when they come and we join together, we're going to be a greater force than we could ever imagine for the gospel in Northwest Cary and even to the ends of the earth. So unity, man, unity is so important in our lives, but the only way to accomplish that is through these characteristics that Paul lays out. And by the way, these aren't the only characteristics of a Christian, right? I mean, there are so many things. You look at the fruit of the Spirit. These are not the only things that we need to be living out. But for the sake of time this morning, these are ones that we can really, really, really focus on. 
and say, these are basic in my life, but I really need to adjust myself in this way. Maybe I'm not a patient person. Maybe I don't live a life that's humble, right? Maybe I find myself saying, you know, check out what I can do, right? Or, you know, look at, look at my paycheck. Look how much money I'm making. Look how successful I am. Instead of saying, okay, look how good I am because of what God has done for me. There's no way I could do what I do. There's no way you could do what you do without the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we need to remember that. So these four characteristics are so, so important for us. So we're to live a life then worthy of our calling. We're called to be Christians. We do this through humility, through gentleness, through patience, and through love. And we aim to keep the unity that has been given to us through Jesus. So pray with me. God, thanks for this morning and thanks for truth and thanks for your word. Thanks for the reminder of, God, what our lives should look like and how we should model Christ in our lives. God, we model these things and if we can, if we can really work on these things, people will look at us like the Chinese brother and say, man, that guy's different. Why does he act that way? In a, in a world that tells him to live so differently, why is he acting in that manner? And that's because of the power of what Jesus did for us and the Spirit and, uh, and of you, Father. And so I pray that we would just take this as, a, as kind of a, a refocus, realignment of, our, of ourselves and, and really take this and, and try to live out these characteristics of, of our calling. So I thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.